Last week we talked, we're talking about the bride of Christ. And last time, what week we talked about the worth of the bride. And this morning we're going to talk about the beauty of the bride. And next week on uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking um, about the union of the bride. About the, uh, yes, uh, the consummation of the, uh, the wedding. And uh, it, it's prefigured in the incarnation, so it really turns out to be quite a, a Christmas theme. Um, but it just carries this, this uh, picture that Paul is painting here between Christ's relationship with the church and a husband and a wife. It brings it full circle, so that's what we'll be talking about uh, on Christmas Eve. The consummation of a wedding. Okay. Ephesians chapter 5, the verses in your bulletins, if you have bulletins. If not, you can turn your Bibles there. For those of you who don't own Bibles, if you're here visiting and you don't own a Bible and um, you're willing to read one, we'll give you one. There's some Bibles back there. We just believe in the power of God's Word. We've got about, uh, near as we can tell, about two-thirds of our church is either listening to or reading through the Bible on a very systematic basis. And our, our, our fundamental conviction is that a lot of what we're seeing God doing in, at Woodland Hills is a direct result of that. Because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we encourage you to be, uh, uh, whether you attend here or not, uh, to be a Bible reader. Uh, that's good for you. That's good for the church. And uh, so we have uh, some Bibles back there if you want to uh, have one. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 25. However, uh, if you're taking those and selling them for a profit somewhere else, don't. <laughs> well, here's one that... Some people have been trading in their Bibles. Uh, you know, I don't know what to think of that. It's like they, we, we get their old version and thing. Okay, half the page is missing. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, this is the topic here. This is what Paul starts off with. You're supposed to love your wife. And if you're looking for an, an, a model, you look to Jesus. More specifically, more specifically you look to Calvary. Here's how you love your wife. Do a Calvary for her. Why did Christ give up his life for the church? Verse 24, or wait, verse 26. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, beaming church, without stain, without wrinkle, or without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's why he died. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. And for this reason, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man will leave his father and, a mother, and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I love the way Paul goes from talking about a common marriage issue to talking about the most sublime metaphysical issue, and then he wraps it all up by coming back to uh, the, the practical issue. I'm talking about Christ and the church, the mystery of all mysteries, but... Before you get too carried away with the sublime, husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect your husbands. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I would ask that this morning you would do something that human words cannot do, and that is communicate to us the reality that we are your bride, 
And therefore, Lord, we have infinite worth and unspeakable beauty before you. And Lord, there are many of us here this morning, God, and in some ways all of us here this morning, we just don't believe that. We can't believe that. There are strongholds that condition us not to believe that. Father, in Jesus' name, I want to come against every one of those strongholds that clouds up our minds and tells us a lie. And Lord God, I would pray that by the time I'm done here, Lord, we'd leave this place feeling beautiful in your eyes and feeling incredibly loved. But you've got to do that. I cannot. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about this. The church is the bride of Christ. Amen. That's not just a metaphor, that's not just poetry, that's not just a nice way of looking at it, it's not just a clever way of thinking about it, it's not an analogy. The church really is the bride of Christ. We usually think that the real marriages are the ones we get involved in uh, here on earth, and Christ is sort of a metaphor of that. It's as though he were married. But the truth is that the real marriage, the one real marriage, is the marriage between Christ and the church. The marriages we get involved in here at an earthly level are the analogies. We are the object lessons. We are the little mini marriages. But the one real marriage is the marriage between Christ and the church. And the thing that history is driving at, the purpose for the creation of the world, the meaning of the whole thing is the acquisition of a bride for the Son of God. It comes down to that. In the same way that two... People married out of their intense love for one another will bring forth a child. So also, God, in His love, wants to, as it were, reproduce His love in another. He doesn't create the world and He doesn't look for a bride to fill a vacuum in His soul. God doesn't have vacuums in His soul. He's not trying to acquire something He doesn't already have. He's not trying to become better or more fulfilled. People get married for those reasons, but God doesn't. But God creates the world and seeks for a bride not to get something but to express something and just the same way that two couples when they come together if they're really healthy and are getting life from Christ they aren't trying to use each other to fill a vacuum in their souls they're trying to express who they are in relationship to one another so also God creates the world not to fill a vacuum but to express who he is and he wants a bride in order to as it were spread out his love the love that characterizes the Godhead Throughout all eternity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God wants to now, we find in John 17, God wants to now include another in that love. 2 Peter 1.4 goes so far as to say that God wants us to be made partakers of His divine nature. The divine nature is God's love. That's what characterizes God throughout eternity. And we will never be God, and that's a good thing. Because then God can give to us, by grace, what is His by nature. He lets us participate in this triune love affair that's going on throughout all eternity. And there is no more profound and deeper and more sublime and more beautiful mystery than that. But that is what we are destined for, and that is what we already, to some degree, participate in when we become believers. Some believers, unfortunately, in fact, many believers, they think that Christianity is about getting off the hell hook. You know, it's, it's fire insurance. It's a legal thing. You know, okay, I, God legally, I'm okay with God legally now, and, and, uh, and that means I won't go to hell. Okay, and I'll, you know, show that I'm thankful for that by going to church, you know, a couple times a year. And they miss 
the beauty, the profound reality that Christianity is. Christianity is not this legality. Any more than I hope your marriages, those of you who are married, I hope your marriage isn't just a legality, because if it is, it's one pretty poor marriage. The marriage to Jesus Christ, yeah, it's a legal, it's a legal contract, as it were, you're justified, but if that's all there is to it, man, you're missing the show. God wants to have this incredible, beautiful relationship with you, and that means being his bride. That's why he created the world. That's what the whole thing is driving at, this love relationship that he has with his bride. And then God shows us the worth that the bride has to him. And in a word, what we said last week was this. You know what something is worth to somebody by what they're willing to pay for it. So the way to settle the question of what are you worth is not by examining your history, not by evaluating what you do or don't do, not by putting yourself on some kind of works scale and seeing how heavy you are. The way to find out what you are worth is by asking this one question. What did the one being who knew what you were worth, what was he willing to pay for you? And the answer to that question is everything. Everything. The Lord says here in Ephesians chapter 5 that he gave himself for us. We are his bride and we had one heck of a dowry on our head and Jesus didn't think twice about paying it, praise God. But rather, he deemed us worth it, us together and us individually, he deemed it worth it. And that speaks volumes about what you are worth. You could put together all the money on earth, everything that's valuable on earth, all the riches on earth, all the riches throughout eternity in all the cosmos and they would not measure next to this like one grain of sand Uh, next to all the beaches in the world, it wouldn't compare to the glory that God has given us by dying for us. He, in essence, said this. What you are worth is what I am worth. I lay down my life for you. Because now we are robed in his righteousness. We are filled with his spirit. We are filled with his holiness. He sees a reflection of himself when he looks upon us. And that is why we, by grace, have what is his by nature. And that is his worth. That's what he thinks about us. That's the price that's on our head. That's what he was willing to pay for us. And if you think that that's a mere legality, friends, you're missing the whole thing. That's what the, the bride is worth. The question you've got to ask, and this leads us to what we're talking about this morning, is this. Why did he think we were worth so much? Why was he willing to pay such a high price? I don't know about you, but my natural inclination is to not see myself like that. I asked the question, Lord, what did you see? Okay, I'm thankful that you paid that price. And I'll take it on faith, I'll believe it. But I don't have a clue as to why you did that. I think most Christians don't. It's like, well, he died because uh, he had to. Uh, I don't know. All I know, it gets me out of hell and that's all I care about. But see, if you can understand the reason why he was willing to do what he did, the reason why he thought you were worth it, it becomes that much more beautiful because what we're about here, folks, is not a legality. We're about a relationship. Why do you love us, Lord? And the answer is also given in Ephesians chapter 5. And it is profoundly simple and it's profoundly beautiful. He didn't love us for any utilitarian reason. That is... He wasn't achieving a purpose. He didn't have a goal. He didn't have an agenda. He wasn't accomplishing anything else in loving us. If he was, then he wouldn't be loving us just for who we are. The reason why the Lord died for us, the reason why he thought we were worth it, the verse says, was to make us holy and blameless and spotless, without a stain, without a wrinkle, and to present to himself this radiant bride radiant bride, beaming bride, 
The end of the whole thing is this. Christ died in order to make us beautiful. And all who say, I do, to the invitation of the groom, will you marry me? All who say, I do, are made that beautiful by putting their trust in the cross. Amen? Amen. The bottom line is this. When the Lord looks upon you when you receive the love of Jesus Christ, when you receive the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you are, the Bible says, loved in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6. You are robed in His righteousness. You are decked out, not just dressed up artificially, but genuinely made to be the beauty of God's own Son. You become a mirror by which God beholds Himself. And that's not an egotistical thing on God's part. God happens to be the definition of beauty and the definition of love. So when He takes us, His children, and wraps us in His holiness, robes us in His righteousness, decks us out in His beauty, He is making us to be the most beautiful, radiant, wonderful, spotless, holy thing that could ever be. It couldn't be better than this. He's making his bride to be a ravishingly beautiful bride that is appropriate for a ravishingly beautiful son. Jesus would reflect very poor taste in women if he did anything less than that. Think about it. How could the Son of God, who is all holy, marry a bride who is less than that? And so the Lord makes the provision. He says, I want a bride. I want to express my love out here in a unique and powerful way. But this bride has got to be appropriate. We've got to be compatible. I'm not compatible with sin, and so she's got to be sinless. She's got to be spotless. She's got to be ravishingly beautiful. She's got to be up to where we are at, and where we are at is God. So she's got to be wrapped out in God-like righteousness and God-like beauty, and that's what the cross of Christ accomplishes. All who believe in Jesus become part of the radiant bride of Christ. It's like this. I was thinking, how can I, I got to get an analogy here, Lord. Well, I got one. <laughs> okay, you know about my analogies. But I, I, and I don't know how, I'm told that women aren't as visual as men. Uh, so I, this is more of a man, you know, analogy maybe. Uh, maybe not, though. Uh, I, I'm just not big in, I don't know these gender issues. I'm always, I've always been confused about it. So I don't know how much this is, you know, but women try to enter into this masculine analogy. But have you ever, has someone ever caught your eye and, and they just struck you as being radiant? Not just their physical beauty, though that maybe struck you too, but their, their, their whole persona. They're radiant. Those of you who are married here, you should be nodding yes, the person I'm sitting next to. <laughs> if you're smart. Only one. But it was like, I remember the time when, when uh, my wife first came to this church that I was at, this little tiny kind of radical church, and we never married outside of this church, so, you know, it, the, this was your, uh, your, uh, your selection pool. Um, and I'm sitting up there, a single guy, playing the marimba in this worship band. I was playing the marimba, and my sister told me that she was going to bring a person to church that wasn't saved. And I saw this person. She's sitting back there. And, uh, man, did I see this person. It was like, you know, playing the marimba, you know, uh, Jesus, I love you. Yes, I do, I do, whatever. And all of a sudden, I look up, and it was like, forget the marimba, forget the worship service, check this out. And <laughs> she was just gorgeous. And I just started praying, Lord, you got to save her. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this poor soul. <laughs> she needs you, Lord, and I need her. 
And then she came forward to the altar. Yeah, where there's an altar call, and she came forward, and I'm just like, oh, Lord, uh, save the lost, reap the harvest. <laughs> and in answer to that old prayer, who will go out for the harvest, I volunteered. Lord, I will be. Here am I, Lord. Someone's got to disciple her, you know. It's hard work, but someone's got to do it. And so I, I volunteered to the Lord. Lord, I'll, I'll be willing to invest my time on this one. The Lord just gave me a burden. <laughs> so that night, we actually went out to eat, and to this day, I insist she winked at me. She says she, did, she denies that, but we were out at, at Perkins, and she winked at me, which told me she wanted me. <laughs> oh, yes, I can. I'm scoring big points here, by the way. <laughs> no. and, uh, but that was nothing compared to our wedding day three and a half years later. When she came down the, uh, the aisle, she was radiant. She was radiant, dressed in white, just radiating this innocence and this beauty and this, this splendor. And I'm up there, and as she's coming down, and the organ's playing, and the people are standing, this is a, a wedding time here like we're going to have on, on, in, in Revelation 19. And I'm looking at her, and my heart's pounding, and I can't believe that she is marrying me. And your heart is ravished with love. This is beauty. This is poetry in motion. And then when I think for a second that when the Lord Jesus Christ looks upon me, that's how he feels. I just start to melt. I don't know about you. But that's the kind of feeling he has. That's the kind of thing that his bride does to him. He wants a radiant church. And what he wants to be doing throughout eternity is celebrating this incredible, beautiful work that he has done, this incredibly beautiful, radiant, splendorous, rapturous bride. And we delight him. That's why the Bible says in Jeremiah 33.3, the Lord says to Jeremiah as a representative of all God's people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you with a love that never began, and I've loved you with a love that will never end, and I've loved you with a love that will not waver. It does not go up and down like a thermometer on the temperature. This is a love that is infinitely intense and passionate and undying. I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's the kind of love that Jesus Christ has towards his bride. That's why Zephaniah 2.8 says that we are the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye. There it is right there. We are, the Bible says in, in Zephaniah 3.17, we, the Lord dances over us. He sings over us. He claps his hands over us like a groom as the bride's coming down who just can't take it. He says, forget all propriety. Forget the ordinary stuff you're supposed to do and begins to sing and begins to dance and begins to clap his hands and begins to shout for joy because his bride that he has for all eternity is so incredibly beautiful. That's what the Lord thinks about us. That's what the Lord thinks about us. That's how we are in his sight. And it has nothing to do with how physically beautiful you are or aren't, that's not the issue. It's got nothing to do with how spiritually achieved you are or aren't or how emotionally mature you are or aren't or any of the other ordinary criteria that people sometimes use to evaluate the worth of a person. This has to do with one thing and one thing only. It has to do with what Jesus Christ has done in making his bride. He's presenting to himself a church. We are not presenting to him us as the church. He's presenting to himself the church, ravished by her beauty and delighted in what he has done for us. Because as I said a minute ago, 
When you believe, when you say, yeah, I'll go to that marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes, I'll be your bride. Do you want me to marry you? I say I do. When you say that, the Bible says that you are robed in His righteousness. You're robed in His beauty. You're decked out in His glory. You radiate like God radiates, but now you have by grace what he has by nature. And the glory of the grace that God is displaying there, the glory of the fact that he would take people who are miserable sinners and at war with him and make them into this radiant, radiant, spotless, blameless, holy, beautiful, ravishing bride. He delights in that throughout all, all eternity, and that's all about what he does for us, not what we do. It's about the cross. It's about putting faith in the cross. And when you do that, the Bible says you become ravishingly beautiful. And I believe with all my heart that the key to all the growth that we're ever going to do, the key to our transformation, ultimately, however much help you may get from other people and from therapists and from pastors or whatever in terms of growing and coming out of the things that bind us, however much you may use those things, it all comes down to this. It comes down to believing that you are, in fact, as ravishingly beautiful as Jesus Christ says you are. Because when you believe that, you begin to live in it. You begin to walk in it. You begin to celebrate it. And your life becomes transformed. Can you hear the words of the Lord, what he says in the Song of Songs? The Bible says this is the Song of Songs because this is the song of all songs. The top song. Like King of all kings means the top king. God of all gods means the top god. Song of all songs means the top song. This is the song of all songs. And at one level, like Ephesians 5, it's a song between a husband and a wife. And on another level... It's a song of all songs because it's a song that Jesus Christ sings to his church and that the church sings back to him. He says this, Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead, all those curls. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. They're so white. and Each one has its twin. Not one stands alone. Back in those days, that was a real plus. Uh, they didn't have toothpaste, you know? It's like, I love your smile, he's saying. Man, you, you don't have a single tooth missing. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of the pomegranate. Your neck is like the, the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns on a gazelle that brawls among the lilies. Never got that analogy. He says this, but I'm sure it's great. All All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. All beautiful you are. There's not one spot or wrinkle on you. There's no blemish whatsoever. You are altogether lovely. How delightful is your love, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. The Lord just loves to smell us. We are a fragrant offering, the Bible says to the Lord. He just, man, you smell good too. Your lips, which back in those days I meant quite a bit too. Your lips drop sweetness as a honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. Listen to this. One more piece here. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, lovely as Jerusalem. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. The Lord is saying, I can't look in your eyes any longer. It's too beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, but it's like, I can't take this. I'm going to go crazy here because you are too beautiful. The question is this. Can you believe that the Lord, when he looks at you, 
has that passion? Has that, is ravished like that? Is that delighted? Is that overwhelmed in you? If, in answering that question, you look at anything other than Calvary, you won't be able to believe it. But we are to look at Calvary and to say, in the light of what God made us to be, when he looks at us, we really are that beautiful. Take it on faith. Think of it like this. We, there's a part of us that wants to say, that's too good, that's too beautiful, that can't be real. But consider this. God is, you know, the greatest conceivable being. You couldn't, just when you think you've imagined God, he's infinitely better than that. He's beyond what we can ever think, beyond what we can ever imagine. He's altogether glorious and altogether beautiful. And God, because he's altogether wonderful and altogether beautiful, he never does anything second rate. He never does anything mediocre. He never does anything than the best. And in all of creation, the thing which he is most proud of, the thing which, in fact, he's been aiming at the most, is the acquisition of a bride. And he doesn't want a second-rate bride. He wants a beautiful bride, and he's willing to do anything to get that. And so in all of creation, what this all-glorious God has done is make something that reflects his glory. And the only way to do that is to make it so that it couldn't possibly be better than it is, and that's what his bride is. If God is greater than you can ever think, your holiness is greater than you can ever think right now. If God is more beautiful than you can ever imagine, you are before God more beautiful than you can ever imagine right this very moment, all of you who say, I do to the Lord. If God is all-powerful, then you are all-ravishing before him. The God who is all-great does the greatest when it comes to achieving what he's aiming at throughout all the creation, and that is the acquisition of his bride. And that's not about who you are. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done in presenting a bride to himself. And all who say, I do to this, are caught up in that romance. What drives history? What's behind all of history? What's moving the whole thing? The reason for all creation is in the end, this incredible, unimaginable, incomprehensible love, a passion, a romance... And the object of that whole thing is the minute you say, I do, it's you. It is you. It is you and you. Think of it in the concrete. It is Greg. It is Betty. It is, it is, it is John. It is Shelley. It is Danae. God has this passionate, undying, everlasting love towards you, and he makes you to be ravishingly beautiful because you say, I do. I think there's a reason why we all like romances. We all like fairy tales. Especially women, but we all like, like, like fairy tales. We always have this fight when we go out to, to movies. Well, you know, are we going to go see uh, a Clint Eastwood flick or are we going to go see you know, Bridges of Madison County or one of these you know, Magnolias? I don't know. <laughs> we call them chick flicks. But, hey, but we all like a good romance, don't we? If you all like a good romance... You know, the, the Cinderella stories, the, the knight in shining white, white armor that comes and rescues the damsel in distress, you know, the, the, the Snow White stories, the live happily ever after stories, the sleepless in Seattle stories, these are my, you know, American president, another good modern Cinderella story, the president falls in love with this, you know, one, re, you know, reporter, and, and it's a wonderful love story, it's a lot of politics, but it's a good love story, and you got a stomach, to, well, may, I, I, no, I'm staying away from that one, I'm not going to touch that. But it's, we love a love story. And the reason is, I believe, is that we have in our heart of hearts the conviction. I, I believe this, that we wish that that kind of love could come true. And in our heart of hearts, we believe that somewhere with somebody, it must have come true. We want to believe that somebody has experienced love like that. And the reason we have that conviction 
is because we were made for it. Fairy tales were made to become true. But they weren't made to come true with a white and shiny night armor. They ain't none of those around. You know, some of us come close maybe. But, but you know, in the end, they'll disappoint you. But we have that, that tick beat in our heart because Jesus Christ is the place. We were, in fact, made for that. And Jesus Christ is a place where fairy tales do come true. That, as C.S. Lewis once said, all the myth that we ever create is, in the end, simply an expression of our longing for the real thing, and the real thing is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the place where our idea of what love should be, our idea of, of, of what it could be like, actually comes true. And the good news of the Bible, the euangelion of the Bible, is that you are the Cinderella. You are... Christ, the Lord told me this during the first service, during when we were singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The word was, and it just, it just melted me. I am Christ, happy ever after. Do you get that? And you are Christ, happy ever after. You are the Lord's Cinderella. You are Jesus Christ, Snow White. You're his sleepless in Seattle. You're his while you were sleeping. Or whatever other romance you want to ever come up with, you're the object of that truth in Jesus Christ. Here the story comes true. If we can but receive it and but believe it. And Jesus Christ is the place where he gets his bride and they do live happily ever after. There's one place and maybe one place only where that kind of love really becomes a reality. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. You're sitting here this morning and maybe you're thinking, especially this time of year, that that sounds like a fairy tale. That just sounds, you know, yeah, you're right when you say that it's like a fairy tale because that sounds like a fairy tale. Because frankly, my life doesn't feel like I'm a spotless bride without a wrinkle, without a blemish. It doesn't feel like that at all. Especially this time of year. There's something, you know, I, I, a lot of us are like this. The, the Christmas time, I, I love the, 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 the kids' stuff. I love the joy. I love the singing. You know, I love that. But there's a part of me that always has to fight off depression. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? A lot, some of you do. There, there's just a weird thing about it. And I think the reason is this, and, and, and this is actually a widespread phenomenon, but Christmas is, to a large degree, the American myth incarnate. Here, with the mythology that we're all going to have happy families and live happily ever after gets played out to the hilt. And all the dreams of what we thought life was going to be and the dreams of what we thought we were going to be and what our families were going to be and what our kids were going to be, we get reminded of that. It's like a measuring stick that we stand next to and we, then we look at what is real and we don't come up to it at all. And so it's a time when a lot of us cut our teeth on reality. You know, you always wanted that family and now you're sitting here and Christmas reminds you of the fact that you, your marriage failed and now you're here single. Uh, or you're here and, and the marriage is not what you thought it was going to be. You, you thought you were going to have that sleepless in Seattle kind of a love and here you are you can't, even, you can't even get along. You always thought you'd have this great godly relationship with your kids and, and, and you'd spew out wisdom and they'd go, gee, like the Brady Bunch. I never thought of that. Gee, that, that, that's my problem. I watch too much Brady Bunch. You know, I never, Dad, that's a good point. I think I'll, I'll think, I'll go down and read my Bible as I think about that, you know. And, and, and you have these ideas of what it's going to be like and you know what? It ain't that way. You're lucky if it's, kind of that way, an echo of that way, but for most of us, it doesn't pan out like that. 
You had a dream of what you wanted your life to be and a dream of what you wanted your family to be and a dream of the occupation that you were going to have or whatever. And maybe for whatever reasons, the career never quite panned out. The relationship didn't quite pan out. You're estranged from your kids. You just don't seem like you connect to it. And it's kind of depressing. And so you're sitting here hearing this stuff and you're wondering, how can I be a spotless bride? How can I even receive this good news when I feel like my life is not at all like that? And individually, you know, I've said things that I can't take back and I've done, I've made mistakes that are irreversible and I've hurt people and I cannot repair it. And there's a reason maybe why my kids don't talk to me or a reason why my parents don't talk to me or a reason why my spouse doesn't talk to me. And I've done this to myself and so you're saying this morning I feel like anything but a spotless bride. Christmas is supposed to be the time when no one is lonely, you know? On Christmas Eve, we get together and carve turkey, and everyone's got us somebody. You know what? There are a lot of people who on Christmas Eve are all by themselves. So what does the gospel have to say about that? Let me just end with just a couple of words, a couple couple of things to say towards that. First is this. The real thing is, is that we, we really are the bride of Christ, spotless. All of that is true. What's also true is we live it in a fallen world, And in a fallen world, dreams rarely pan out the way we think they're going to pan out. And even when they do pan out, they're anticlimactical. It was, uh, Audius Huxley said this one time, he was an atheist, he he said, there comes a time when after listening to Shakespeare and Beethoven and other, you know, Mozart, there comes a time when you say, is that it? Is that the best? Because there's something profoundly unfulfilling about this world in and of itself, and it's supposed to be that way. But the fallen thing is that we don't even come up to that. The fallen thing is that in this world, things just don't usually work out the way you plan. There's, things are out of kilter. There's sin. There's fall. Things are always a little bit strained. Relationships are always a little bit strained. Things, dreams never just pan out. They never get in flesh the way you hope they would. And I'm not saying that to get us all depressed. Like, man, who thinks that life sucks this Christmas? You know, that's a... <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. Don't rejoice, don't rejoice, Emmanuel. But I am saying this. You know what? You're not odd if you feel that way. You're not odd. Don't feel like you're weird. Everyone looks around at Christmas and they think everybody else is living a Christmas dream. But you know what? No one's living a Christmas dream perfectly. You are normal if you feel totally out of place, uh, out of kilter, just alienated, kind of, uh, you know, things just don't fit. That's pretty normal. And be okay with being... Strive to have the best family and be the best person you can be. Strive to have good relationships. Strive to have the most intense love you can have. Do that. I'm not saying give up on that, but on the other hand, don't expect it to fulfill your fairy tale dreams because it's not going to happen. And sometimes it turns into not only not a fairy tale, it turns into a nightmare. Be okay, not condoning that, but be okay with living in that reality. Now we see through a glass darkly. Next week we're going to talk about the place that he's had in store for us. There'll come a time when this stuff will end. But until then, you've got to be okay with it. Use, here's the second point. Use the discrepancy between the dreams you had and the reality that you live in. That discrepancy which causes the pain. Use the pain to drive you to the one in whom the fairy tale comes true. Instead of trying to frustratingly wring perfection out of your kids and wring perfection out of your marriage... Keep on striving for the best there, but you'll be able to do that better if you do this. Go to Christ and let this groom, this marvelous, beautiful Savior, love you with his everlasting love and try to drink from his infinite well what the world will never supply you with. Use the pain of your marriage maybe this morning, the pain of your very imperfect marriage. Use that 
to go to the one who really you're ultimately married to and let him be your spouse and love you the way maybe your present spouse cannot love you. Go to Jesus Christ. And the third thing is this, and it's really just the way to do that. We all need to hear, I believe it's the most profound thing in each one of our lives, the most profound need in all of our lives, but we need to hear the song of songs sung to us. It doesn't do you a bit of good to say, well, God loves the world. He gave his only begotten son. What I need to know is, does God love Greg? Because it's easy for Greg to think that God loves the world, but he's not part of what God loves. I need to hear the song of songs with my name attached onto it, and so do you. And I'd encourage you to do this. A marriage is not a marriage unless the husband and wife get together sometimes and love one another. And so also your marriage to Christ is nothing unless there's times where you get together and love one another. And so make a date with Jesus where you sit down, maybe even read the song of songs. And, and, and when you come to the part where Christ speaks to the bride, close your eyes and say the words, but see his face to it. Hear him tell you, you are, you are altogether lovely, Rob. You are beautiful beyond description. You, I, find, you, you, I find no flaw in you. You delight me. You ravish my heart. Turn your eyes from me because I can't, I can't bear looking at you. And all of your, you'll, you'll come up with a thousand reasons perhaps where you'll say, oh, that can't be true, that can't be true. But then look to the cross and accept on faith that it is true. Spend time, maybe turn off the lights, get alone, put on some nice music, and let the Lord speak to you those words. I love you with an everlasting love. That word and that word alone, the word that puts reality to fairy tales, is what we were made for. That is what transforms our life. You can, do all, you can strive all you want. You'll never be transformed like this word will transform you if you just let it in your heart and really come to the point of believing it. 